Hello and welcome to this week's Thursday Top 5. I'm Paige. I'm Anna. We hope everyone was able to enjoy our pre-recorded Monday Chatter check-in this week and that no one was even able to notice that we were recording via Zoom for our last Thursday Top 5. Technology truly just continues to amaze. I know, it's been great. Um, We're so excited to share that like we've been up to a bunch of things separately um, during like this time that we've had apart during next week's Monday chatter check-in. It's actually the first time that we haven't visited the same thing in months, so it will be a new dynamic. I think it's like so crazy to think about that I did art things without you. It just like (laughs) blows my mind. Yeah, that's crazy. I actually was like talking to my parents this morning about how crazy it is that like with technology you can truly just work from anywhere and that we're able to do this even though we're like so far away it's like we could really go anywhere now we're not tied down (laughs) true but I think we're ready to dive in into this week's stories yes first up we have a fun update last week we talked about how Sotheby's was launching a new science and pop culture department and that the first sale was very soon So the sale ended yesterday, and although no article at the time of our recording has been published about the results, we thought it would be fun to discuss just a few of the lots that we liked beforehand. So first up, we had an original neon rainbow apple sign, like from the Apple store, and Anna actually texted this one to me before the sale, and I think we both agreed that we just thought it was so cool and different. And the estimate was ten to fifteen thousand, but it actually sold for five hundred sixty-four thousand five hundred dollars, which is huge. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, I think my favorite thing from the sale, but also the thing that like scared me the most, was a nineteenth-century like panel of eyes from Spain. So it was like a bunch of glass eyes that people, um, I guess, used to like study what eyes like are like and like. Also, I guess if like you didn't have an eye, they could do that in the 19th century, which is crazy. But there were a lot of things that just like surprised me. Yeah. There was also, I like learned a lot from this sale, but it was just like such a weird sale. It was so strange. The eye thing was so creepy. And then I wasn't able to watch the sale as it was happening. But when I looked before we recorded just now, it was missing from the list of lots. So I don't know what happened to that. But yeah, it might have been withdrawn. Exactly. But it was like the cover image. So if you go, we included a link. You can see the work for yourself because it's still used as an advertisement for the sale. But maybe not. It's really creepy. So that's your personal call. Yeah. And then other things were like a triceratops um, skull, which the estimate was four hundred to five hundred thousand, and it sold for five hundred and four thousand. And it had eighty percent completeness of the bone mass, which is like one of the most complete ones ever found. Very impressive. And then finally, we talked about it in our last episode, but there was an Andy Warhol bust of Leonardo da Vinci, and it sold for two hundred and fifty-two thousand dollars. And it's best known for being in a photo with Warhol and Basquiat, which was taken by Lizzie Himmel in 1985. So that really is like an iconic piece of pop culture. Also, something that I want to point out before we move on is that even though like the prices we're giving out right now are like very high and like over like $100,000, mm-hmm. a lot of the lots in this sale were like their estimates were like 1000 to like 
3000 or like even below 10000 So like in a way, it was a very accessible sale. And then some of the things, I guess, like their estimates were like kind of low and they just surprised like the Apple sign. Right. I completely agree. And a lot of the lots also had no reserve, which makes it even more accessible yes. because that means it has to normally it has to meet its reserve before it's sold. But if there's no reserve, mm-hmm. it could sell for $10. So I think we're ready to move on. Our second update comes to us from Insider News, where photos were shared showing that, quote, New York's iconic Museum of Natural History has been transformed into a COVID-19 vaccine site. So also in a previous episode, we discussed the possibility for museums to be used as vaccination sites. And as of April 23rd, New Yorkers can get their COVID-19 vaccine on the bottom floor of the Natural History Museum's Hall of Ocean Life, underneath the suspended blue whale model. Yeah, so if you look closely at the 94-foot whale suspended up high in the center of the hall, you'll see a six-foot-long Band-Aid indicating that she has been vaccinated as well. Which is so cute. And the vaccinations come with a general admission museum voucher for up to four people. So you really get a lot more bang for your buck if you go and get vaccinated at the museum than the pharmacy or the Javits Center. Yeah, and the photos are so fun and unique, so everyone should go take a look. And it kind of reminds me of when we first started the podcast. I think we talked about the Brooklyn Museum being turned into a um, testing center. Mm -hmm. So it's just like crazy to see how museums have adapted to like fit this new way of life. And it really does fit because a museum is supposed to be a cultural educational center. So it's just moving along with the times and getting everyone vaccinated. Very exciting. Yeah. Our first headline of the week comes to us from Art News, which reported that, quote, Philips launches art advisory branch aimed at sourcing works on primary market. So Philip announced that it will create an art advisory service called Philips Art Advisory, PAA, that will help clients in a range of needs from acquisitions to collection management. So Kevi Yang, a specialist at the house, will lead up the new advisory service focusing on helping clients acquire works by contemporary artists on the primary market and on building their collections over a long period of time. And Philip specialists will work directly with galleries and in some cases directly with the artists themselves to purchase works before anyone else does. Yeah, so Yang said the advisory firm was established in order to aid clients by serving as on-the-ground points of contact for sourcing works outside of the auctions or private sales on the secondary market. The approach reflects Philip's attempt to meet increasing demand among collectors to source works by emerging and mid-career artists in high demand on the primary market before their prices begin to skyrocket on the secondary market. Yeah, and Yang said that she sees the formation of PAA as mutually beneficial for galleries and for Philips and not in direct competition, competition with one another. Acquiring work by some of today's most in-demand contemporary artists can often be difficult as they usually have a low supply of work relative to the long wait list to buy their art. And PA will also provide market research and appraisals as well as advice on museum philanthropy, which I found super interesting. And the establishment of PAA, which will charge an undisclosed fee to clients, appears to continue the house's aim to look for ways to source revenue outside of secondary market sales. And I think this is a theme we've touched on over all auction houses, how they really are branching out into other aspects of the art world to try and get revenue wherever and really become like a full service to their clients. 
Yeah, I think Sotheby's last year in the middle of the pandemic actually launched a new initiative. Um, like they partnered up with a bunch of blue chip galleries. I don't, I didn't really hear much about it. It was not like an art advisory like this one, but it was like a similar thing going on. I just like don't really know if these things are counteractive because if auction houses are like in close contact with galleries, wouldn't that just like kind of make the market one and then prices will go up anyways like doesn't this like still drive up the price of emerging contemporary artists i agree i think what's so interesting is oftentimes people who will not be able to purchase a work by an artist from a gallery because of waitlist and gallery systems they'll go to the auction house to be able to buy the work but if the auction house is also sourcing primary market works like where's the difference no exactly it's very interesting It'll be an interesting story to follow and see what other auction houses do because they all do seem to kind of like jump on each other's tails. I agree. It'll be like NFTs. Exactly. Which is going so well. (laughs) Our second story today comes to us from Artnet where it was reported that, quote, an Indonesian theme park must destroy its knockoff of Chris Burden's urban light after losing a suit brought by the artist's estate. So an Indonesian selfie paradise has been ordered to destroy one of its most popular attractions due to a copyright violation. The offending photo op, Love Light, appears to be a ripoff of Urban Light, the famed LACMA public art installation by the late artist Chris Burden. So the Indonesian commercial court at the Central Jakarta District Court agreed with that analysis, siding with the Burden state in its lawsuit against Rabbit Town. So Love Light is owned by Rabbit Town theme park, and popular selfie spot with colorful installations allegedly inspired by iconic global artwork. So this is not a unique case at the park. No, it actually has been widely criticized for installations that appear to copy the work of multiple artists, including Kusama's Obliteration Room and Colette Miller's series of um, angel wing murals in LA, as well as several rooms from the Museum of Ice Cream, which is like the Bubba Museum that has been in different spots like New York and San Francisco and Singapore. And Rabbit Town founder Henry Husada, a hotel magnate who named the park after his zodiac sign, the rabbit, argued in his defense that the two works were not similar, despite the fact that both are symmetrical displays of hundreds of ornate lampposts arranged in rows of descending height and that urban light was not well-known in Indonesia. But the fact that it's not well-known is not really an argument for making a copy. You can't just be like, oh, no one knows this painting and make a second version. Yeah, no, like, that doesn't work like, like that. That's not an argument. Not, no, and it also did not help his case that a photograph that was provided as evidence so showed him and his two daughters posing in front of Burden's work during a visit to L.A., And it's so photographed. You go, you Google LACMA, like that's what comes up, not the actual museum. Right. It's crazy. And Husada has denied allegations of plagiarism, saying, quote, from a young age, I have loved stickers. This is why we have a sticker room, referencing his copy of Kusama's obliteration room. He also said, quote, I have also loved lamps and electricity since I was young. 
This is just like absurd. He's really like sticking to his guns, like really going for it. I know, but it's like so obvious that these are copies. Like if you go to the article link, you can see that the things look the same. Like the sticker room looks exactly like Kusama's room and so I on. also think what's so crazy is the wings that they have in LA. There'll be like a line of tourists around a building waiting to like pose in front of the angel wings for their photo. And that's... yes. It's like you could have painted something else. It didn't have to be angel wings. It's so clearly a copy. No, exactly. Like you could have taken that idea and done something else with it. But yeah, Burden State legal victory comes despite more lax enforcement of intellectual property laws across Asia, particularly in China, where whole European cities have actually been recreated and fake Osama and Murakami exhibitions have toured the nation. So clearly borrowing someone else's ideas is not like really frowned upon by law or like like even by like society there I guess I also feel like like I mean maybe it's nice for people who won't be able to visit LA to be able to see it in person but there's the fact that there's no acknowledgement that it is a copy I think there are ways to do that though like for example we talked about last week the Sistine Chapel in Mexico how they recreated it with just like videos and stuff and like yeah a lot of people in Mexico will never get to visit the Sistine Chapel but they can still see what it looks like through these like 3D things and that's incredible that's such a great point and yeah and it like acknowledges that this is not something that they came up with but rather something they're borrowing just so that more people can see it and like there's nothing wrong with wanting to make art accessible to more people and to like more like nations it just ha- there has to be an acknowledgement that it is a copy of something else or like someone else's work not just like oh I actually also love lampposts right it's not the act the fact that they're trying to rec- recreate the works because there is an argument for that it's the fact that he's so aggressive that it's not a copy when it just so obviously is a copy exactly But moving on to our third headline, which comes to us from Art News, which reported that, quote, Kanye West shoes sell for $1.8 million in Sotheby's private sale, setting new record. A pair of shoes worn by Kanye West at the 2008 Grammys have notched a new milestone. Earlier this week, the sneaker sold for $1.8 million via a private sale orchestrated by the auction house. They're most likely the first pair of sneakers to sell for more than $1 million, and they are the most expensive pair of sneakers ever sold based on publicly reported numbers, and Sotheby's did not reveal the buyer of the shoes. The sneakers known as Nike Air Yeezy 1 prototypes were donned by the rapper as he performed his songs Hey Mama and Stronger on live television at the annual Music Awards show. The shoes are black and gold and feature a just barely visible Nike swoosh on their sides. In a statement, Sotheby's head of streetwear and modern collectibles said the sale speaks volumes of Kanye's legacy as one of the most influential clothing and sneaker designers of our time and of the Yeezy franchise he has built, which has become an industry titan. So sneakers have been sold as collectibles since 1985, but their appearance at major auction houses in sales is a relatively new phenomenon. Over the past few years, Christie's and Sotheby's have found momentum by offering sneakers to buyers as a major collecting category in their own right. Yeah, and the record minted by the sneakers worn by West shatter the one 
set last year by a pardon word by Michael Jordan. And those were sold for $560,000 at a Sotheby's online sale against a $150,000 high estimate. I just think it's so interesting because it's like the popular culture auction that we talked about in our emerging news. It's like the auction houses are just going so far outside of their realm. Yeah, I also think like specifically right now, Kanye is so controversial for a variety of reasons. And ever since like announcing the divorce with Kim Kardashian, like there has been a lot of press around him. And obviously with the whole um, presidential campaign, like, yes, he is a pop star, but I think he has become so much more in the past few years. Mm -hmm. And it also reminded me a little bit of um, the... B.I.G. Notorious Crown, like the plastic crown that we talked about a few months ago um, and how like some things like just like plastic became worth $500 million, not $500 million, $500,000. And yeah, I don't know. No, it's so similar because it's like an item that in and of itself does not really have any value, like a pair of how much is a pair of Nike sneakers worth? But then because of the connection to the celebrity, they go for so much at auction because they become this like pop cultural item. Also, I just um, this just reminded me I saw a sale or like a news headline that of a sale that um, Janet Jackson is doing for charity and she's selling like a bunch of weird things. Oh, really? That. I will not talk about right now, but everyone should go look that up. It's very interesting. And I guess like she's selling them for charity, but like once you look it up, like you'll wonder who wants to buy these things and like why. Um, and it's kind of like the same with these sneakers. Like they're sweaty. Like who who wants that? He wore them. It's not like, oh, here's and a prototype. Yeah. Like he actually wore them, but maybe that's what exactly. makes them more valuable. It's like buying a sports jersey. That's true. It's just, I feel like it's, you can buy such a beautiful piece of art for $1 million. <laughs> An incredible and I, work of art for a million. Almost $2 million. Um, but you can, like, I would not pay that, like, for sneakers, no matter who wore them. And then, like, do you put them in a glass case? Like, what do you do with them? No, exactly. Like, you do. But that's crazy. You can't wear I guess them. you have to be, like... Because I understand Michael Jordan more, in a way, just because, like, he is a basketball player. So, like, it makes more sense for him, to like, his sneakers to be, like, so valuable. It's like a sports jersey, like you said. Mm-hmm. But, like, Kanye just wore these to the Grammys. like And, like, yes, his, like, whole empire with, like, Easy and stuff is, like, sneakers. But at the same time, it's still, like... Like, that's not what he started out as or, like, what he's ultimately most known for. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder who bought them. They're never going to say, but I wish we knew. Oh, I know. Maybe if they go up for auction, like, sometime, we'll we'll know. Or they'll appear in a museum show like The Cause Sunglasses. Yes, exactly. Our fourth story this week is some surprising art gallery breaking news coming to us from the art newspaper where it was revealed that, quote, Flight of the Balloon Dog, Jeff Koons leaving Gagosian and David's Werner Galleries for Pace. 
We love a creative headline, and I just thought Flight of the Balloon Dog was so cute. But in some breaking news, the world's most expensive living artist, Jeff Koons, will now be represented exclusively worldwide by Pace Gallery, having left David Zwerner and Gagosian, which have sold his works for years. Um, There were so many headlines about this because I guess it's like a really big deal. But I think my favorite one was Pace and Koons are now exclusive. And I just thought it was like (laughs) so funny and like clever. Um, Yeah. But Pace has permanent spaces in New York, Hong Kong, Seoul, London, Palo Alto, and Geneva. So it's like, I mean, we've talked about it. It's like one of the best galleries out there. Mm Mm-hmm. And the American artist who's known for his high shine inflatable sculptures, one of which Rabbit sold for $91.1 million, including fees in 2019, which is the sale that makes him the most expensive living artist at auction. And Koons apparently had some sort of professional epiphany over the pandemic and announced that, quote, going through the last year or so and having the opportunity to reflect on what I would like to achieve with my life's work in order to bring it to its fullest potential, I have decided that a change in the environment in which my work is viewed and supported would be a positive thing at this time. It's like he's like everyone else working who has have decided that they don't want to ever go back to the office. He's just like switching his office. Yeah. It was crazy because I guess a lot of the um, artists Pace represents are like more experimental than like the artists Gogosian more than Sorner. Like I think Sorner is like also a little bit like experimental, but Gogosian is more like traditional in mm-hmm. that sense. But Koons is now going to like be with all those artists like James Terrell that are like all about light and like film and like creative things Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying he's not creative it's just like his things are so like kitsch and like pop art type things and also it's gonna be interesting seeing them in that environment and like compared to the other artists that Pace represents yeah and they're so large there's the argument that can be made that Koons is lobby art yes he's like cause but in a different way yeah and Koons told the New York Times that he told Larry Gagosian and David Zwerner of his decision in letters sent last Friday. He's been with Gagosian since 2001 and Zwerner since 2013. So Gagosian, that's like a long time, 20 years. Right before, yeah, right before the pandemic, actually, um, some of his works were like on view at 980, like the Madison Avenue um, location of Gagosian. And there were a lot of them, like four. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, both Sorner and Gagosian have been involved in court cases with collectors over sales of Kuhn's works in the past decade. And this move might be cl- a clean break from some of the controversies that have surrounded his work. And Pace's first show with the artist will be an exhibition of sculpture at the gallery's Palo Alto space next year, followed by a show of new work at the New York space in 2023. I can't wait um, to see it. It's two years away, but I think it's going to be really great just because of um, how great the space Pace has in New York is. Like, there's so much that can be done um, with that space. I think we've talked about this before on a few Monday Chatter check-in episodes where we've gone. The Irving Penn show that Pace put on in their New York gallery was one of my favorite gallery shows I've seen recently. I was obsessed with it, but I also wrote my thesis on Irving Penn, so that might be very personal. No, no, I also loved it. It's like currently my phone background, like one of the photographs is my phone's background. 
Exactly. So if Anna made it because her I phone think- background, you know it's good. <laughs> I think it was just like we saw works that we'd never seen before, like not even on textbooks. Right. Um. So it was like a very special show. And before these shows that are opening at Pace's Galleries, the artist has multiple institutional shows, which are already scheduled in France, Italy, and Qatar. So very international. It really speaks to what a big deal Coons is as an artist, and hence why it's such a big deal that he's leaving his current gallery representation. No, I agree. I When I went to the Prada Foundation um, in Milan, one of the works that everyone like wants to see is the giant flowers, like the tulips, which are like massive. And they also um, have them at the Broad in LA, like downtown yes, LA. Exactly. Yes. Anyways, I think we're ready for fifth and final story. Yes, our fifth and final story comes to us from the arts newspaper where it was revealed that quote french historians up in arms over plans to install napoleon horse skeleton above his tomb this story is honestly so weird but i thought it would be fun to talk Very about weird. french artist pascal convert has defended plans to install a replica skeleton of napoleon's horse above the military leader's tomb in paris after historians and commentators have called the project shocking So the sculpture Memento Marengo is due to be displayed in the hallowed dome of the Invalides, a church housed at the Army Museum from May 7th to January 31st, 2022. The horse was a purebred light gray Arab stallion named after Napoleon's victory at the Battle of Marengo in Italy in 1800. In June of 1815, Marengo was captured on the battlefield after the Duke of Wellington defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo and taken back to England. The horse's skeleton was first displayed at the Royal United Services Institute, and then it was moved to the National Army Museum in London in the 1960s. Putting the skeleton on loan was completely out of the question because of the fragile nature of the bones. And apparently British sensitivities concerning the relic, which is a symbol of their victory at Waterloo. So they were not really ready to send it to Paris. The artist was granted permission to make a high definition 3D copy as long as he guaranteed that this would be the only one ever made and that it would only be exhibited during the bicentenary commemoration. And the work is part of a larger exhibition called Napoleon question mark encore exclamation point. I feel like the punctuation there is important. It's important. Yeah. And it marks the bicentenary of the death of Napoleon and it's being put on by the National Institute for Art History in Paris. According to the National Institute for Art History, 30 contemporary artists received an open invitation to question the symbolic and historical figure. So there's been a lot of controversy about the material that was chosen by the artist for the sculpture because he's chosen to do it in plastic as the 3D copy. And the artist replied, would it be different had my sculpture been made in gold? And then one critic on Twitter went so far as to share a contemporary artist, not an excuse for everything. So like, yes, it would have been different if you made it in gold, I guess. I guess it would have been, but then material aside, a lot of people are upset that the work penetrates this like sacred circle of the emperor's tomb because the idea for the piece is to physically have the skeleton hanging over the tomb, which like that is kind of creepy, I guess. No, it's really weird. I like, and it's not the real skeleton; it's a copy, so that makes it like even weirder. Yeah, I think it is. Just like the plastic thing is so weird, but it's. I guess, like, so many people are making sculptures out of plastic. Like, what about the 
plastic David that's going to be on right. view in Dubai. And this is so similar to that because they're making the plastic replica because they cannot transport the actual skeleton similarly to how the David's not going anywhere. Exactly. It's so wild. Like, do you think it's creepy though? Like, <laughs> Yeah, so I think it's creepy and wild and I'm um, kind of curious to see how it turns out. Yeah, and I think this is definitely unbelievable press for the 30 artists, like all of them, because it's an exhibition that I didn't know about before this. So that's always exciting, I guess. Lastly, we couldn't finish the episode without an NFT-related story. Our emerging story comes to us from the art newspaper, where it was reported that, quote, Basquiat NFT withdrawn from auction after artist estate intervenes. So the original story, also by the art newspaper, reported that, quote, Basquiat drawing to be auctioned as an NFT and winning bidder will be given the option to destroy the original. The 1986 mixed-media work on paper, Free Comb with Pagodia, was bought privately in 2015 for an undisclosed sum. Now, the NFT of the drawing has been actually withdrawn from the sale on OpenSea after Basquiat State confirmed the seller does not own the license or rights to the work. The estate did not specifically address whether it believes that the drawing was genuine or fake, although apparently it was authenticated by Basquiat's estate in 2002 and the current owner has proof of purchase and payment to substantiate exclusive ownership, which then technically would give you the right to destroy it. Right. The drawing had actually been offered at auction by Heritage Auctions in Texas in 2012 for an estimate of 80 to 120,000, but it failed to sell and then it was sold privately by a gallery in Philadelphia for an undisclosed sum in 2015. And when pressed on the copyright issue, Daystorm clarified, quote, while blockchain transactions are widely considered a trusted source of authentication and provenance, Best copyright practices have yet to evolve for the digital economy. The so firm close. also said that it had discovered the sale of unlicensed illicit reproductions of Basquiat's work on retail platforms such as Amazon. These inexpensive, poorly reproduced versions of Basquiat's works are actually sourced in China and made av- available in the U.S. without right title, interest, or copyright from any legitimate legitimate sources. So we're kind of like circling back to the story about um, the lampposts and how um, just like law reproduction rights and things like that are so much different in Asia and Mm -hmm. this is just like another instance of that and then uh, another great thing about this article is that it compared the sale to the Banksy sale at Sotheby's where the work was automatically destroyed it basically like went through a shredder as soon as the lot was sold yeah I think like this is just like such a wild story because the fact that first it was going to be turned into an NFT and then the owner of the NFT would be allowed to destroy the drawing is like insane just like based on how much these drawings go for. I just um, like hate that because so much. What if, because like you what can't if, just destroy it. But I just think it's so crazy. The original story in and of itself was so crazy that the fact that you could turn something into an NFT and then destroy the original copy and then adding this like copyright issue and potential authentication issues on top of that is just wild. There were already copyright issues with and like so many other issues with the first original story just because there are issues with NFTs being reproduced already. Mm -hmm. So if the original was destroyed and then there was only an NFT but the NFT was reproduced like there would be no 
like authentic copy but that's just a whole different thing crazy story i think that's it for the week yes definitely stay tuned for our monday chatter check-in coming this monday because we will be talking about multiple exhibitions because we're separated yes oh next week is the opening of freeze which is going to be the first in-person art fair in the u.s since the pandemic began so that's very exciting i won't be attending but i think Paige will be there yes so also stay tuned for a couple other like exciting updates yeah thank you